Welcome to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to serve a digestible dose of culture for all. Cultured Podcast. Hope you're doing fine. Please have a seat. We're about to get started right now in a minute. Hey, that wasn't so bad, was it? I mean, I'm fairly bad at accents, but I tried for you guys. All right, if it's your first time listening to the Cultured Podcast, please understand that this is what you've signed up for. And I am Michelle Corey, your goofy, inquisitive, high energy hostess with the mostest or or second mostest. I don't know. There might be somebody with more stist than me. Um, okay, today we've got a super interesting episode. We're talking about documentary filmmaking. So that's right, folks. It's our first film episode. And we have got none other than Billy Corbin. Not to be confused with Billy Corrigan, the lead singer of the Smashing Pumpkins, who is not our guest today and is not a documentary filmmaker. Billy, our guest, Corbin, is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning filmmaker, and he is behind a slew of incredible films, but most notoriously, Cocaine Cowboys, Square Grouper, Limelight, So he's like really the real deal, you guys. I'm so grateful that he came on the Cultured Podcast and shared some incredible tidbits about what it takes to direct a pop doc, which is basically a category that Billy and his fellow producers came up with to make documentaries a little sexier because back in the day they were pretty dry. So now that documentaries are really, really hot and everybody loves them and they're all over Netflix, we learn from one of the pioneers of sexy documentary filmmaking what it takes and what differentiates a dry documentary from one that really makes you feel like you're a part of the moment. Uh, You guys are going to love this episode. Uh, Seriously, it's really fun. Okay, so before we dive into that, let's talk about what's inspiring me this week. And it's something that's inspired me my whole life and helped me accomplish so many things. Sleep. I love sleeping. I really, really love sleeping. And I am a person who needs to get eight hours a night. And I'm currently not on eight hours of sleep. I have coffee brewing behind me as we speak because mama needs her caffeine. My blood is basically all coffee. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's an intense situation over here. So, you know, I, I have, I hear a lot of people say like, oh, you'll sleep when you're dead or, you know, who needs sleep when you can do this or, oh my God, I barely sleep anymore. And it makes me super, super sad. Um, cause I don't want to sleep when I'm dead. I want to sleep when I'm alive. Cause I really enjoy it. It's like one of my favorite hobbies. So yeah, I guess I'm talking so much about sleep because I want to have it right now. Anyway, guys, tell me your opinions on sleep. How many hours a night do you get? And do you think I'm insane for wanting to sleep this much? Cause I mean, I don't think I am. I look at cats and dogs. They sleep all day. They like, they get it. All right, y'all, I'm going to stop rambling about sleep. All right, let's pass the mic to Billy because this man is like a shot of espresso. Well, I'm a uh, Florida native and a lifelong Miamian and um, met my producing partners, the first one, David Sipkin, when I was actually in preschool. Uh, we didn't start. We didn't start producing together yet uh, in preschool, but yeah. But growing up, did did make a lot of uh, you know backyard home videos and things like that. That was the you know very much the sort of eight millimeter era of uh, you know the Sony Handycam, and and we had a lot of fun. And and uh, we're always interested as film buffs and in film production. And um, met Alfred Spellman, our other producing partner. Uh, I met him in television production class in middle school. We would produce the morning news every day for the school on the, you know, the closed circuit TV channel. And then started to do in, in high school community service productions where we would, it was kind of like by kids, for kids. And our first project was waiting with an ellipses in 93, uh, which was about a, a scripted project about a young woman waiting for the results of her HIV blood test. Because I mean, in like the 
early to mid nineties, there was a real kind of crisis in the school system of how to teach AIDS education to young people. And they had devised a curriculum, but it seemed that the teachers didn't really have the stomach for it. We had gone through that in middle school with, with the teachers not really knowing how to handle an AIDS education curriculum. And so we decided that we would do a, a, a short film that w- could work in lieu, uh, not in lieu of, but in support of the AIDS education curriculum. And we actually are ourselves as sophomores in high school, not only produced the project over winter break and cast it and then prepared like a curriculum or a study guide, I should say, to, to show teachers how this conformed to the AIDS education curriculum. And that became our first like major distributed project. Uh, it was in first, we, what? yeah, first as, as, as high school sophomores, we sold it to all of the middle and high schools in Miami-Dade County, Palm Beach, Monroe, Orange County. And then we wound up getting picked up by one of the largest educational uh, film distributors in the world and they distributed it. And, and so that was like our first project. And we were, we were, what were we, 14, 15? Our parents and, and grandparents had to drive us to meetings because we couldn't drive yet. Was that the first moment that you remember thinking like, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life? Yeah, but I also knew that pretty soon anyway, pretty early. I mean, you know, when I was six years old or whatever, I I saw a friend who was doing TV commercials and I saw her in a Sears commercial riding a bike and I went, oh my God, that's incredible. I want to do that. I watched a lot of TV as a kid. I watched a lot of movies as a kid. And I think the idea that like this person that I knew in real life was inside the television was just badass. I just thought that that was a cool thing. I don't even know that I knew that there were people who made it. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right, I just knew that right. there was people on TV. And I, I, I think it wasn't until I got on set in my first you know, commercial that, that, I, that I realized the, the logistics of this and how elaborate it was and how many people were involved and how many more interesting things there were to do other than to be, to be in it. You know? And so that became my, my after-school activity. But, but I had the incredible opportunity to audition for Ron Howard for a movie called Parenthood that they were making. Mm. Oh my God. It's about 1988. It was one of the first movies that was ever shot at Universal Studios Florida in Orlando. So Ron Howard came to Miami to audition uh, kids mostly for some of the smaller roles at the birthday party and the baseball team. And I got a part in Parenthood and with dialogue and I I got to curse (laughs) in in the movie. It It was pretty fun. And then for me... It was working with Ron Howard was enlightening. Even I was nine years old or whatever I was, because here was a former child actor or recovering child actor turned, you know, very popular and well-respected director. And he knew everybody's name on the set. Like no matter if you had like four lines like I did, or you were a star or you were on the crew, he, he said good morning to everybody. Like he was such a cool guy. And I think that was the moment where I probably said, oh, wait, that's what I want to do. I can parlay this into into that, and I can be the guy calling the shots, you know? <laughs> well, that's fascinating. And and would you say, because for you at 16 or 15 even, to come up with this idea of, of trying to fix this problem of education about HIV, for you to have that kind of vision of the world around you I, I feel like that's something that was probably ingrained in you since you were born basically of, of just seeing the world in a very particular way I think my parents raised us well I think we were woke AF you know <laughs> I, I think we were I think we were very at least you know news savvy or or aware and 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 they, they were they I think they prided themselves on on keeping us informed about the state of the world you know I, I think something about being a movie buff you, 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 you're just a consumer of, of information and entertainment and ideas and creativity. So I, I evolved very quickly as Dave did and Alfred did. We were always like news buffs. You know, we would consume information and facts and knowledge and storytelling and content wherever we could get it. And as you were growing up, that was from the newspaper and the TV news, you know, before pre-internet, of course. And so we, we always prided ourselves on being well-informed, but also well-rounded in that we would always kind of challenge ourselves and each other by exposing ourselves to ideas, you know, that, that maybe ran counter to our own belief system. And I think that that ultimately helped us develop into better documentarians. 
and this idea of chasing the truth obviously being the main purpose of a documentary. And storytelling. And, and this idea that we had early on has become much more popularized. The idea that, that documentaries are still, if not first and foremost, then at least at worst secondarily, pieces of popular entertainment. You know, and, and I think that, at, that early on in our lifetimes, it was not necessarily seen that way. You know, it, it was it was supposed to be a very dry, uh, you know, if not dull, at least very dry telling your know, recitation of facts being told uh, by talking heads and on very socially conscious subjects like the Holocaust and civil rights. The, the, the concept that I think we, we really ran with, we call our genre pop docs, which is to say that, that not that they're not socially conscious or don't deal in, in facts or truth or you know, historical events, but that they, they keep in mind or, or keep on the fore the idea that in order to get people interested in this, you still have to uh, be a piece of, of entertainment, you know, that they will want to consume and then realize that they're learning something, you know, <laughs> almost like, oh, wow, I just, I just learned something and right. I was entertained for two <laughs> hours. And, and so, uh, you know, that's, we wanted to do pick, choose subjects and then depict them in a style that were perhaps a little pulpier, you know, than your typical documentary subject matter and, and a little bit more stylistically uh, entertaining than what at that time anyway, like pre-cocaine cowboys was was the preconception of what a documentary should be, um, and so that was that was our idea was to kind of bridge the gap between I, 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 generations, I guess, in terms of how we perceive nonfiction uh, filmmaking. And now you can see that a lot of it's come around. I mean, it's it's one of the most popular forms that there is, and they are in every genre. And they are they are animated, and they are musicals, and they are biopics, and they are romance, and they are sports, and they are they're now they're now everywhere, and and more uh, more often and, and more than ever, you're talking to people who say that their favorite content to watch is nonfiction or documentaries, or or that some of their favorite movies are are documentaries, and and I feel very privileged that we were kind of part of I think a generation that was a part of that movement. Let's talk a little bit about Cocaine Cowboys since you've mentioned it a couple times and I mean this was the when I saw Cocaine Cowboys which is about the well I'll let you explain uh, the premise of Cocaine Cowboys and how you happened upon it but it opened a whole new understanding of the city that I grew up in. I didn't know these details about it. It taught me a lot and I was just absolutely blown away by this documentary. So tell me a little bit about the process of creating Cocaine Cowboys. Where did the idea first come from? Well, um, we grew up in Miami. I guess we could start there. Uh, And so, uh, you know, as children, honestly, we were not exposed to the drugs so much that was happening in in places where in nightclubs and places where we were not going as kids. But I had very clear memories from my childhood in this middle middle class uh predominantly jewish neighborhood in north miami beach i remember the money the pr neighbors were not in the drug business per se but everybody was doing better i say that miami in the 1980s is one of the only uh real world uh examples of reagan's trickle down economics where there was literally so much cash being generated in narco dollars and through the through the the drug trade that it trickled down into every business and every it touched everybody in Miami no matter what you did for a living you had a little extra cash kicking around thanks to the influx of literally billions of dollars it was a a gold rush is what it was and 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 that was really you know to answer your your other question the premise you know or the thesis of cocaine cowboys is that what we experienced in the late 70s and into the 1980s, this, this drug rush generated so much revenue that it impacted every facet of our society and, and ultimately found its way into infrastructure and essentially built the city of Miami and, and South Florida as we know it today. Uh, without the drug trade and without those narco dollars, Miami would not exist in the thriving modern metropolis that it, that it is uh, right now. And, and that was the thesis, which I think was pretty controversial at the time and is now, a decade later, pretty well considered to be conventional wisdom. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think. 
<laughs> okay, so tell me, I, I'm just, I'm very curious about the process of making a film like Cocaine Cowboys, especially given how controversial it must have been seen, like you just mentioned, when you were making it. Um, so were there a lot of obstacles that you ran against that you had to kind of find a way to bulldoze? It's a great question. So on the upside, we kind of did it on the down low. Our first documentary, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, had premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2001. And we only we had decided to make that documentary in January of 2000. So that was a whirlwind production, post-production festival season. Uh, we were on the front page of the New York Post. It was like, it was a whirlwind. And we thought like, okay, cool. Now that we've been anointed the bells of the Sundance Ball by, by, the, by the world's press, we're going to be able to like just knock on doors, make calls, get any meeting we want. And we could. We could get the meetings, but nobody understood our pitch for Cocaine Cowboys. It was it was called City Made of Snow at the time, and nobody got it. Nobody thought it was a good idea. Nobody understood it, and nobody was interested in buying it. So we wound up with an angel investor and started to – like I said, do it on the down low um, and eventually raised enough money to finish it and go uh, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in, in 06. But prior to that, you know, the biggest issue was really, uh, you know, Alfred had, had immersed himself in many long out of print nonfiction books about South Florida in that era, in the narco boom era. So when I got a call from a cousin who said, hey, Bill, you ever hear, hear this guy, John Purnell Roberts? And I'm like, no. He's like, well, I just met him at the pool at my condo in Aventura. <laughs> and he's like, and he's been telling me the craziest stories about his time in Miami as a cocaine trafficker. He recently was released from, from federal prison. And, you know, he, he seems like a fascinating guy. So let me call Alfred. I said, Alfred, you ever hear, hear of a guy named John Purnell Roberts? Alfred goes, holy crap. John Purnell Roberts from Max Mermelstein's Man Who Made It Snow Book. And I, we start, we start, he goes on and on and on, everything about this guy. I said, well, you know, Cousin Dave just met him at the pool <laughs> at, at his condo in Aventura. And, and you want to go meet him? Hell yeah, let's do it. So we do it and he introduces us to Mickey Monday. And the next thing you know, we have a, 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 a trafficker, a pilot, a smuggler, and we have a wholesaler. Um an interesting guy, John Roberts, who by the by the time he was 30 or before he was 30 years old, had worked for the two largest, most famous and notorious organized crime syndicates in the world, the Italian mob in New York and then the Colombian cocaine cartel. Holy and, um, crap. And so – and then Mickey Monday who was a fascinating you know, Miami redneck guy who was a, a real kind of – fancied himself a kind of romantic swashbuckling smuggler, you know, pirate character and and but but really was that in actuality in many ways. And so we were fascinated by these guys and and we realized, okay, we don't have any Colombians. You know, this was a Colombian trade. Alfred wound up becoming pen pals with several Colombian hitmen, as you do, in prison, many of whom could not speak because there is no statute of limitations on murder. But we found a guy who was in a very unique uh, situation. You know, we had the three acts, if you will, the three act structure, the beginning, the middle and the end of Cocaine Cowboys was going to be you know, the business, the money and the murder, meaning first this industry, this this new cocaine trade that was blowing up in, in South Florida and really taking over from marijuana, uh, which was far less lucrative. It was much riskier, uh, much bulkier. Um, the prison sentences were, were becoming longer for, for marijuana at the time, and people were starting to grow it domestically, meaning there was a less of a need to smuggle it you know, at that time. Uh, and cocaine, right. which was smaller, more profitable, and the sentencing guidelines from the, from the government, the criminal justice system, hadn't quite caught up yet, so it was actually less risky. Uh, to do it. I mean, everything about it was more appealing, which is why it took over in the late 70s, early 80s from, from the marijuana trade. Um, and so that was the business, the logistics of it, how it blew up. And then, of course, the money was the impact of the business, you know, how th the incredible profits it yielded changed the entire and built the entire city. And lastly, of course, you know, when you're dealing in a, in a consignment cash business, dealing in those kinds of dollars, you, you need to enforce your business and you're not going to take if, – if you give someone four kilos and they owe you $200,000, they don't pay you. You don't file a, a lawsuit against them in court. 
you know, you, you hire hitmen or enforcers who will go and enforce. So that, and that was really the downfall of it as well. Cause as soon as the violence exploded, that's when people in Miami could no longer look the other way. You know, <laughs> they were, they were, they were, they were cool with the drugs because it was perceived as a party drug of rich white people at the time, you know, like doctors and lawyers would party all weekend and then go back Monday morning to work, you know, as contributing wealthy members of society. So it didn't really have the stigma that heroin had before it and that crack would have after it. Um, and so people didn't care about the drugs. They loved the money and were always willing to look the other way for the money. But as soon as, you know, you had shootouts in broad daylight at busy shopping malls, you know, and cops are getting killed and women and children are caught in the crossfire, that's when folks say, well, we got to put a stop to this. So that was our three act structure. We kind of had everything but the murder and this hitman, Jorge Riviayala, uh, AKA George Rivera, he had a very unique plea deal with the state attorney's office where he could speak openly about all of the murders he was involved in in the Miami-Dade County area, um, though not other jurisdictions. And he was Im- he was immune, not from prosecution, but immune from the death penalty because he he pled guilty and was serving three life sentences rather than rather than three death penalty, uh, you know, death penalties. So he was able to speak chapter and verse about this era and his work and the murders he had, had either committed or witnessed or was aware of or, or co-conspired in. And that became, you know, that final component that we needed. And he agreed to do an interview. And we did a series of interviews with him uh, in prison in the state of Florida. My God, what does it feel like to sit there talking to this person who's murdered so many people? Let me tell you that he was a really soft-spoken, charming, likable guy. He had a real way of ingratiating himself to people. He spoke he spoke very good English, um, which is part of why he was so good at what he did. He would read the Miami Herald every day. And in fact, on one such occasion, he was reading the Miami Herald. He always had like a list of names that his boss, Griselda Blanco, uh, La Madrina, the godmother, she there was like a constant list like an ongoing list of names of people she wanted killed and how much she would pay him if if he killed them and or brought them to her and he's looking he's reading the obituary section and in the obituary section he sees that a young kid about 2 or 3 years old had drowned in his family's pool behind their house and they were holding a wake for him at this address at the home and Rivi recognizes the parents' names and goes, oh, Griselda's looking for this guy. They roll up on the house. They send somebody to the door to get him to come outside, and they machine gun him in his front yard during his young child's wake. Um, at the, yeah, because they because Rivi read and identified his name in the obituary section of the Miami Herald for his young son's uh, death. Yeah. And so, so freaking Rivi, insane. Yeah. Well, welcome to Miami. Let me ask you, you as the filmmaker, as somebody who has to basically live through, relive all of these stories with these people to then tell them on camera, what what is the state of mind that you're in as a filmmaker during this process? Well, non-judgmental. Let's start there. Uh, because a lot of documentarians, you know, take sides, you know, do activism documentaries. I'm not, by the way, I'm not judging that at all. That is a legitimate genre. We decided to go with this kind of non-judgmental, objective uh, uh, take. Now, I definitely have my opinions and my feelings ab- uh, about them. And I think that we we depict the the stories and the people fairly and honestly on all sides of an issue. But we, I ultimately like the audience to be the, the jury, you know, the fact finders and, 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 and be able to elicit their own opinions and ideas about the people in the story. So, you know, the guy is a murderer. There's no question. Confessed, admitted, men, women, children. But it, it's not my place. So we didn't perceive it as our place to, to thumb our nose at him, but say, here he is. Take take from it what you will. You know, here he is. Here's his story. There's no narrator. There's no Q and A. There's just his side of the story, if you will, his version of the events. And you judge him. You know, I, I don't. We didn't feel it was necessarily our job to to judge people, but to present the facts and and let the audience decide. That's been for a lot of our, not all, but for a lot of our work, we, we've taken that 
that objective, non-judgmental sort of step back. And I think that's how you have to approach people. And I think people trust you and 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 know they can trust you when they see your work because you're you're not you know going out there and and saying okay this this man or woman is a scumbag or a liar or a cheater or a corrupt or what have you and you know so people trust your work or people are willing to to talk to you and and people are willing to watch because they they have an idea of what they're going to what they're going to get now some people call that glorification uh, <laughs> i i would beg to differ um sure i think you have to there's certainly the threat of getting too close to your subjects and and getting kind of emotionally involved, so to speak, and that happens. But I I I try to say like my pinned tweet, as you might know, is is the job of a or the mission of a of a filmmaker or documentarian in particular is is two steps. It's one, find a good story, and two, don't screw it up. Yeah. Well, I actually say don't don't f it up. But but that's you know that's the that's the PG thirteen versus the R rated version of it. You know, so so I find the best way to approach that is usually by by letting the audience make up their own mind, presenting the facts the best you can, and then letting the audience uh, decide where they fall on the person or the issue or the, or, or, right. or the story. Well, and, and you bring up a, a really important point, which is that when you are interviewing someone and trying to get their story, especially when you're talking to someone who has murdered people or sold drugs or done something considered uh, morally reprehensible in society, you it's an art form to get them to really open up and give you the whole story. So... How do you approach getting the full story out of someone and making them feel comfortable? Because I, I imagine when you first approach them, they have massive walls up. Well, it depends. I mean, Rivi, for example, had already participated in some pretty extensive depositions that we were able to obtain and utilize as our uh, research materials to prepare for his interview um, or interviews, plural. We did several interviews, but he still needed to trust us. You know, with with this access and with his story, and I think he was aware and impressed of our body of knowledge. I think he was he was impressed that we had obtained and consumed uh, his deposition. You know that that we had a a handle on names and dates and events and people that really only he and people intimately involved in the case uh, and people who had read his deposition, of which there were there were precious few, had any knowledge of or awareness uh, of. And so I think he was impressed that that we had the information, wanted to know more about the information, um, and, and, and trusted us because I, I think he thought that we had done our homework. Um, in, in fact, a funny story, I don't know how many times I've ever told this, on a recording anyway, but uh, when we were in, we were in one of the prisons doing an interview with Rivi and we were having a legal dispute with our our distributor on our first documentary that I told you about from Sundance, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent. It was a very frustrating, pointless litigation and that we ultimately won and they they were forced to pay all of our legal bills. So we were clearly on the right side of it. But at that time that we were working on Cocaine Cowboys, it was still a very frustrating – we were in the midst of it. you know, And so it was very – exhausting and very draining and very expensive and 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 demoralizing and and of course nobody had seen our first documentary or very few people had because it was tied up and and so it just sucked and so uh, the guards brought Rivi in uh while we were still setting up the cameras and the equipment and the lights and so Rivi's sitting there and uh, I'm helping um our crew build the set and the cameras and lights and and Alfred is is reviewing his 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 notes and our notes on the for the interview and they're just sitting there and, and, and Rivi says, Hey, Hey, Alfred. And Alfred looks up and says, yeah, yeah. He goes, you okay? And Rivi spoke at a whisper practically. Uh, you can kind of tell from the documentary, it's almost a mumble, but it's really like a whisper. And I don't know if it's, if it's from spending most of his adult life in prison. It's just, you know, like something you learn, you know, a behavior you learn from, from being institutionalized for so long, or it was a tactic that, let me tell you, he would speak so softly, you would often, you would have to get really, really close to him, almost ear to ear with him to have a conversation. And I was, I always thought, I'm like, well, is this like an institutionalization thing? Or is he just trying to get you to come closer to him? And you're like, wait a second, I am like, 
a breath away from this murderer, you know, because you're literally like ear to ear in order to have a conversation with him. And you don't even think about it until it's too late. You know what I mean? Like it, it was <laughs> right. But, but not that he ever put a hand on us or touch or, or, or threat. But like, I'm just saying like that, that's just the kind of guy he was. He was so kind of unassuming and charming and likable and quiet. So anyway, Alfred, Alfred, you okay? I guess Alfred, you know, had a furrowed brow or was frustrated, you know, or, or appeared to be frustrated. But, but he, but Rivy was also very perceptive that way, you know, very observant and taking things in and, 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 you know, looking at faces. And so Alfred said, yeah, he goes, you know, I'm just a little distracted and frustrated. He goes, you know, our, our, this distributor, you know, has basically taken our movie. They won't pay us. They won't release the film. They won't let us resell it. And Rivy goes, somebody owe you money? And Alfred goes, well, I mean, not exactly. I mean, yeah, kind of, but they also, he's like, oh, no, no, you don't worry. You call my brother in Chicago. He'll take care of it. You just give him a name and an address and don't worry about it. He'll get your money. And Alfred just, <laughs> Alfred told me about that, obviously, at the end of the day of, of, of filming, you know, that in the interview. And we just, and it was funny because we just laughed about it, obviously, because it was just like, oh, well, we can always call Rivy's brother, I guess, if we need to, if we need, if we have any collections, <laughs> if we have any collections issues, we need to address. Needless to say, we never, we never made that phone call, and it and it worked out, worked out okay for us in the end. But like, that was just, you know, that that was just a funny story from the making. The bonus of the job is that you now have this network of enforcers. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Well, there you go. Listen, you know, Florida, Florida's always been a sunny place for shady people. And so, you know, <laughs> this idea that, you know, one of my, my, my pastimes is I, I rarely go to like club clubs, you know, like South Beach kind of stuff. Like I, yeah. I love dive bars, you know, cause they're just, they're cheaper and they're chill. Um, you can mm. have a conversation with people and, and you invariably meet interesting people. You know, if you just kind of walk into a bar and pull up a stool next to the crustiest, crustiest dude you can find and strike up a conversation, inevitably he, he will have turned out to have been a deposed third world dictator or a drug smuggler, <laughs> somebody, you know, a, a Medicare fraudster who just got out of prison. I mean, like, this is just Miami. It's, it's funny. We did a documentary called uh, uh, Square Grouper, The Godfathers of Ganja. And I wanted to kind of recreate that vibe. So a lot of the photography, unlike Cocaine Cowboys, was a little more laid back. It had more of like a, a Jimmy Buffett vibe, you know, instead of like the yeah. instead of the Miami like Cocaine Cowboys, like neon fast dolly moves, like like pastel colors. This was like earth tones, depth of field, like and wide shots where literally guys were sitting at bars having drinks during the interview, you know, like just to create that mm -hmm. that vibe of like. You know these these guys just telling you their war stories. You know about the good old bad old days, and and because that to me is like that's Florida to me, not just Miami, totally. but like Florida in general. That's well, that's the vibe. There's literally a bar in Palm Beach called Square Grouper. Absolutely, and and one in the Keys uh, as well, which is, of course is is named for the slang term for bales of marijuana found floating in the waters off of South Florida because it was so common in the 70s that they had nicknames they called it seaweed they called it square grouper they had t-shirts no idea yeah they had t-shirts that said save the bales because like <laughs> you know because you'd have guys out there who would either they'd either run aground you know or hit hit a storm or rough waters or they'd be chased by marine patrol or coast guard or cops and if they, it, inevitably bales of pot would wind up in the water somehow and then fishermen would accidentally catch them you know on their lines or in their nets or they would just you'd be literally at the beach in miami beach like chilling behind the fountain blue and all of a sudden a bale a giant bale of marijuana would just literally float right up at your feet my god those were the good old days <laughs> <laughs> so actually you brought up a really interesting point and it's the fact that you have to make some very conscious decisions to set the tone for whatever story you're telling, particularly with, I mean, in any kind of filmmaking, but especially in documentary filmmaking, you're delivering, it's almost like you're bringing the audience back into whatever period of time or whatever situation you're telling. So oh, yeah. tell me a little bit more. I found it really interesting how you compared like Cocaine Cowboys, the, the shots that you took and then versus Square Grouper and then maybe compare another film that you recently yeah. did that was very different. That's a great question. That's like the big question too. Uh, you know, the definition of documentary I like to use is uh, documentary is a creative interpretation of reality. You know, because the moment you make any decisions about, for example, what is going to be inside the four frames of your shot when you're filming something, 
you're making a creative decision that is manipulating that reality. You might not want to, but you're never going to be able to give anyone a full and complete picture of anything. You know, you you have to make it. You, your documentary isn't going to be twelve years long. You know, it's going to be two hours or six hours or eight hours. Meaning, you're going to make a decision about what makes the final cut and what doesn't make the final cut. And as a result, you are creatively interpreting that reality. It's just by by necessity you have to to do that. And there are two forms of documentary filmmaking. You can either record or you can recreate. Uh, recording is more of the, quote, reality show type. It's a verite piece where you are following uh, real events or real people with a camera and capturing it live as it's unfolding. And then later, of course, you edit into a coherent story with a beginning, middle, and end. And then to recreate is what you're saying. It's a historical documentary where you are recreating a time and a place in history, you know, using whatever material you have at your disposal, you know, contemporary interviews with, you know, historians or people who actually lived and experienced it. That's always our priority. I call our, our projects first person productions. It's all about I and we and not they and he, you know, people right from the horse's mouth telling the audience what they did. Actually, they, they, they themselves rather than what other people uh, did. And why do you choose that first person? It's just the most compelling, I think. It's the most credible. People like to hear that. Like I could sit around and tell you stories about what other people did, um, but you want to know about my experience and, and my work and, and how I approach it, you know? And, and, yeah. and so I just think that's more more compelling um, that way. And, and, and I think the audience takes to it much better. And the audience gets a chance to, to gauge whether or not they think the subject's full of crap. Because, you know, whenever, whenever you're interviewing someone about their own life, there's always a level of revisionist history, you know, involved to, to make them look more like the victim or more like the hero or whatever, people, however people want to be perceived. But I think that's also part of the fun is everybody, we all have our own BS detectors and some are better than others. And, and we like to watch the docs and go, that guy's entertaining, but he's full of crap. You know, like that's part of the, that's part of the fun is audience, audience as jury, you know, and I, and I like that, you know, and, and so we do a lot of historical documentaries and, and to a limited uh, extent dogfight, for example, was a a verite, a follow doc where we were recording rather than, than recreating cooking cowboys, of course, is a recreation square grouper is a recreation. Um, but then, you know, my, my, my rule of, you know, find a good story and then don't screw it up or find a good story and tell it well how to do that. Cause that's not just a, you know, like it, it's easier said than done, you know? Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So yeah. Cause first of all, how do you know if it's a good story or not, you know? And, and so I, I, I apply this test um, to, to ideas that we have or projects that other people pitch us or, or that other people want to know if I think it's a good idea or how to make it or how to, to best tell the story. I call it R A S relevance, access, style. The RAS test. Uh, it's not foolproof, but it is idiot proof. So you can <laughs> you can take it and say, okay, relevant. I say, who gives a crap? You know, people have ideas that's oh, this will make the most amazing documentary. Well, you have to ask yourself, is anybody going to be interested in it? Does anybody care about it? Will anybody watch it? And I like people just to watch our work and react to it and love it and hate it and complain about it and tweet me crap about it or whatever it is. I think that's part of it, especially with documentary filmmaking. To me, in many ways, the documentaries are just the beginning of a conversation. And then A is access. I say access. I mean, it's the, it's the secret to life. It's what do they say? It's, it's not what you know. It's who you know. And in, in this case, access to a good idea, access to interview subjects, access to equipment, to, to, to knowledge, you know, and expertise and crew who know how to use the equipment, locations, a script, a distributor, a, you name it, access to anything. I mean, like you just, you, you know, you, if you don't have anything or can't get it, you're not going to be able to make anything. Yeah. I mean, you need the raw materials that go into producing something. And then S, style. It's not what you say, but it's how you say it. So, you know, I, I, I like, I think we have a style and people can recognize our work or like our our work because it has a particular style, but we also make those tweaks. Like you were asking my comparison from Cocaine Cowboys to, to Square Grouper, you know, wanna, we want to be in service of the story. We want to serve the story. And so telling a story about the fast-paced, wild, dangerous Cocaine Cowboys era of Miami is not the same as the kind of 
quieter, more mellow, you know, Jimmy Buffett days of the of potholing in the seventies. You know, like it's just a different vibe, and so you you can't just have the same pace and the same style and the same music and the same. You really need to to to, to understand what makes the story unique. And so what we've actually done, you know, we we've had four drug movies that we've that we've made. Um, that all kind of represent a decade. You know, we have Square Grouper, The Godfathers of Ganja in the 70s. We've got the 80s, um, you know, cocaine epidemic leading into crack uh, in Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustling with the Godmother. And then into the 90s and early zeros of the kind of the cyclical trend in drugs uh, seems to be every 10 years or so, or, or I don't know exactly how, but I'll tell you that pot is a perennial. Pot's always popular. You know, a cocaine was big in the 80s and then kind of had a resurgence in like the zeros, you know. Um, uh, of course, 60s were was like, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics. But then that kind of came around again in the 90s. You know, people were doing shrooms and dropping acid and then ecstasy, you know, MDMA became big because it, it kind of, it was like chemistry's version of the psychedelics, you know. And so- right. And so we did Limelight about the Peter Gation's nightclub empire, the biggest in history and the biggest to this day, uh, a Manhattan or New York nightclub empire owned by this Canadian guy, Peter Gation, who was eventually caught up in a massive MDMA ecstasy trafficking uh, indictment. And so we kind of adopted an, uh, an aesthetic for each of those movies that was informed by the drug that they were, <laughs> that they were the drugs that they were about. So, wow, you know, yeah. yeah. So Square Grouper had what I call a pot aesthetic. You know, it, it like I said, the the color scheme was was earth tones. We had very wide wide shots so that people were in these very comfortable casual environments. In some cases, as I said, even in a bar, uh, having a cigarette or, or a, and or a, a cocktail or beer. Um, we had like a really comfortable depth of field. It had a, you know, a, a haze to it, you know, like a, a kind of nostalgic almost haze about it. And then the, the, the Dolly moves were very mellow, you know, just chill. It was, it was just <laughs> chill and, and, and the, the pictures were not very elaborately animated. It was a much more Ken Burns kind of approach to the to the pictures, where there wasn't a lot of animation or layering or fast panning. It was very kind of mellow, you know, mellow zooms and and pans and and just kind of letting you take in and soak in the atmosphere. The music was very Jimmy Buffetty acoustic. You know, it had a, a a reggae vibe in our Jamaica story. You know, it had uh, it just it, it was just it, it really evoked. Um, you know, that, that time period, even the lower thirds, when we would tell you the names of, of the characters or the people that we were interviewing, it, they were all spray painted on a burlap sack, you know, like that was, that's how pot was usually packaged and, and, and smuggled. So that was the vibe. And then to counter that cocaine cowboys, um, had a very cocaine aesthetic, you know, we had, it was, if it wasn't the first documentary, it was one of the first documentaries to use dollies during the interviews where the ca oh, wow. the camera yeah the camera was constantly in motion um and we used a minimum of two as many as three or four cameras on some of the interviews so that we'd have a lot of coverage and can do a lot of cutting during the the, the documentary um wow. in, so it almost of, felt frantic frantic and instead of fading to black we faded to white and there was instead of earth tones, it was a lot of pastels, you know, Miami Vice colors, light blues and pink right. and, and and a real there was like an art deco style font for the lower thirds with a with a kind of a Miami Vice glow behind uh, some of the lettering. Um, we uh, we shot in every conceivable format. Um, in addition to to the hundreds of hours of archive footage and B-roll we had. There was 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, super eight millimeter VHS digital video. We recorded Holy uh, like it was, yeah, we took a very sort of Oliver Stone, you know, JFK or Nixon or natural born killers approach to both the production and the post-production. And then the music score was done entirely by Jan Hammer, who did four years worth of Miami Vice music, including the famous Miami Vice theme. I think they say that the average feature film has about between like 1,200 and 1,500 cuts in it. I think we estimated the Cocaine Cowboys has about 5,000 cuts over, over the course of its nearly two-hour running time. So that's very much the style we went Editing for there. Editing that is a monstrous accomplishment. 
Oh, yeah. You, you, uh, Dave is sitting right here listening to me. He broke out in a sweat when I talked about how many cuts were in, uh, were in Cocaine Cowboys. And it's very cold. PTSD. Yeah, it's very – yeah, total PTSD right now. Yeah, I'm, we're going to – in an hour, I'm going to find him you know, huddled naked and shivering in the corner uh, in, in a fetal position. Um, it was traumatic. Like, like uh, you know, I, I certainly oh, don't mean so to – Oh, but so worth it from a fan. It the, so worth it. Oh, thank you, but, I don't mean to compare it to the traumas of war, certainly, but but we were working on on a version of Final Cut Pro that was not equipped to handle the magnitude of the project, the number, you know, the array of formats, the number of cuts. I mean, it, it could barely pull from the drives fast enough in order to to get the information. And we had quite a few crashes. We actually had a works in progress screening at the Miami International Film Festival that was canceled or really postponed because we could not get our movie off the hard drives. Oh it was God. it was being held hostage because Final Cut Pro was just like f this like I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna do this. So now comparatively talk about how you yeah. showed MDMA in the style of the film. Well, it's it's weird because I. Uh, my, my friends from that I grew up with in Miami in high school and college, they started making fun of me when, when Raconteur, when our company started to become popular for mostly drug culture documentaries or many drug culture documentaries, they would be like, dude, you didn't, you've never done any drugs. Like, how are you <laughs> making all these drug movies? And I never smoked pot, never did cocaine, never did uh, MDMA. Like, and, and so we needed to consult with, particularly with MDMA, because with cocaine and pot, like I've seen enough people on it and, and we're all pop culturally aware enough of it. You know what I mean? To like be able to understand right. its effects. Now, MDMA, I didn't. No, I wasn't around it. I didn't. I wasn't knowingly around people who were on it, so I didn't actually know what that was. So we actually got in touch with um, a friend of a friend who not only had done it, but was also a graphic designer. So she was able to describe it in terms that could speak to you know what we needed to do visually uh, with it. And yeah, and so so to to that end, we watch Limelight. There's a lot of blurring on the periphery. Uh, so I understand that like you're very focused on what is directly in front of you. You know, you, do, you you have like this very almost needle point kind of like boom, right? Zeroing in. So we had this, we had blurred the edges. Uh, it's famous for, um, you go to a rave and everybody has glow sticks, you know, and that's because of light traces, you know, and when lights move, lights trace. So we would do a lot of that, like lights would kind of would move around or people would zigzag their hand and, and light traces would come out of it, you know, like a very trippy kind of glow stick sort of light trace effect we would use. Um, there were certain moments where people said like you get a sort of not an echo, but like the, the audio gets very focused or tinny or so we would, we would do certain audio uh, effects, you know, the, the fonting was, and, and the lower thirding was also very much inspired by light traces and, and glowing lights and flashing lights. And the graphics were very much in the style of either old rave, like nineties rave flyers or the types of old school, like computer animation that they would project on the walls at a rave, you know, like the, like old school screensaver almost, almost, you know, kind of stuff <laughs> yeah. where, and, you know, and so like the, the graphics were inspired by that. And then as the story kind of goes, it, it becomes a more kind of a Kafka-esque K-hole. You know, it goes from like kind of a nonstop partying, rolling on, you know, on ecstasy to this sort of like Kafka-esque K-hole. So everything like the lights started to melt, the backgrounds in, during the interviews started to, to melt. You know, like it, it started to get a lot darker. The footage started to, to warp. And, and become a little more disturbing and and haunting and and darker. Um, and then for the score, um, you know, the Fun Love and Criminals did the whole original score, which was very much it was like it was Taxi Driver meets a rave, is what it was. It was <laughs> it was Bernard Herman on ecstasy. So it was like this really cool synthesized score, but then with like a live horn, like live trumpet, live sax. Um, so that gave it that that New York film noir taxi driver feel, but very much with the, you know, with, with the, with the rave, right. the rave beat and the rave sounds from his synth collection, which was all very nineties centric. And so, you know, we, we, we really captured the sights and sounds of that era. My God, that's fascinating. I mean, you've provided such a great example of all of the different things that you have to think about when you're representing these real life stories and the essence of the stories that you're telling. When you're trying to create, recreate an era, you know, you, you really, to me, it's like, you know, a good documentary is a time machine. 
you know, when you're, and no matter how far back you're going, you're transporting people to, to that time period and you want them to experience it uh, and understand it in an authentic way. That is amazing. And honestly, this this whole time, I've just it's so easy to listen to you because you're clearly very passionate about what you do. You're very good at what you do. And it's fascinating. I don't think a lot of people understand the side of a documentary filmmaking that you've shown us today. So thank you so much, Billy, for being on the Cultured Podcast. This has been a blast. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Where can people go to find more about you and chat with you of course just come to uh cocainecowboys.com that's our company site uh for rack and tour with information on contacting us on all of our projects uh past and present and future and you can uh, hit me up anytime on twitter at billy corbin b-i-l-l-y-c-o-r-b-e-n not billy corgan the lead singer of smashing pumpkins he, if you want Wait, to contact you're him not the lead singer of smashing pumpkins i know stop and Damn delete it. stop Ugh, and yeah, delete this bye. is over <laughs> this is actually that that happens so often it's pretty it's pretty hilarious in in almost every medium where people mistake us i'm the one with the hair um <laughs> and no and no musical talent um and of course i'm on instagram Instagram as well, Billy Corbin, uh, at Billy Corbin, C-O-R-B-E-N. Wow. Honestly, did I not tell you that was an amazing episode? Billy's insights are incredible, and he has so much energy. He might be the only guest on the Cultured Podcast, other than maybe Brian Cloudis on episode two about immersive theater, who has surpassed my level of energy. He's amazing. I mean, all of his, the way that he sees the world and the way that he dissects what he's do, he does is so fascinating. And it, at least for me, brought a whole new appreciation to documentary filmmaking and what goes on to bring the essence of someone else's story to life in a way that is both accurate, but also really compelling and and draws you into the moment as an audience member. Wow, I, I'm gonna go watch Cocaine Cowboys again. So um, I already took my nap and now I'm gonna watch Cocaine Cowboys. All right, well, he told you everywhere that you can reach him online, but as always, you can go to the show notes for this episode at culturedpodcast.com and you can find all links to where you can find Billy and you can find some screen grabs from his movies and you can explore at culturedpodcast.com slash episodes all the past episodes you've missed and of course you can binge listen, which I highly recommend. They're fun to listen to all in sequence and you can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, etc, etc, etc. Y'all, I can't wait to talk to you next week. And without further ado, keep it classy. Keep it curious. Keep it cultured. I'm Michelle Corey. Sean Powers is our producer. David Markowitz is our executive producer. The Cultured Podcast is a production of Zero Mile Media, made with love in Atlanta. You can listen to Cultured on culturedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you love what you're hearing, don't forget to rate and review The Cultured Podcast on Apple Podcasts.